I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Welcome to Tell Me About Your Father's annual Academy Awards episode on which we ruminate and pontificate on the father themes, characters, and manifestations running through some of this year's Oscar-nominated films. I am Matthew Phil. And I'm Erin Hosier. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. This year, fathers are both aggressively present and notably absent, which I guess is pretty much on brand for fathers. From your standard issue, well-meaning but emotionally stunted ex-military father who learns to see his son in Avatar 2, to a narcissistic predatory prodigy conductor who describes herself as a father at one point in time, a distinct lack of father becomes a dominating driving force in Blonde, the fathers in everything, everywhere, all at once, who only have supporting roles in an existential mother and daughter story are all either about to leave are in and out of another dimension half the time or they're in and out of consciousness there's a yearning for paternal redemption in the whale austin butler's performance as the title character in elvis is according to the late lisa marie presley unprecedented and finally done accurately and respectfully lots of cinematic dad stuff as we say but before i introduce our esteemed guest and we get to the fathers in films if you're able to please like and review us on apple podcasts it's super easy and helpful and if you don't want to do that please copy the link to this episode and text it to someone who might like it and someone who might hate it there's no wrong person to send it to great so now for the 786th year in a row we're joined by vanity fair's chief critic the inventor of the tv recap and the co-host of vanity fair's oscar podcast little gold men richard lawson Hello. Every time you do this podcast, Richard, you look 100 years younger. And I don't know how, <laughs> but you do. Well, you I mean, it's the serums, you know. Did, you're just doing to, the serums. Yeah. Well, again. so I'm, I basically, I found in a forest a big, like a pond full of Ozempic. Great. Oh. I've been si- siphoning that off, but don't, I'm not going to tell anyone where it is. Right. So that yep. stopped the aging process in its tracks. As, I don't um, have cheeks anymore like there's just you just see kind of jaws clacking if you look at me from the side but <laughs> just jaws clacking great yeah. every time we talk to you richard also like i love hearing about your father we love hearing about your father what's your dad up to my dad uh, who just turned 89 in january mm. um is uh good he's coming down to new york with my mother for their first visit to see me in like five years i've always wow. i mean I've, I've gone up to see them obviously but like pandemic and things they, they moved from boston to providence in 2019 so they just haven't had an opportunity to be down here so i'm excited for that though a little bit wary of the fact that he's 89 i live in a yeah. fifth floor walk up Okay. Walking around New York can be stressful and tiring and all that. So for the first time ever, we rented a car. Very good. Yeah, so yeah. we can go drive out to Brighton Beach or something and just do yeah, weird stuff. Just that, get that in you... a car. Just yeah, get in a car you know. and drive. We're just going to go to the Short Hills Mall. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, Run yeah. Long Island. Yeah. Go to the food court. Well, there was a chance we were going to meet, um, speaking of fathers, my boyfriend's father and his soon-to-be wife have not met my parents yet and mm-hmm. so we were thinking about maybe doing that on long island but yeah. i think unfortunately it's just going to be too busy a weekend i'm 
using unfortunately sarcastically. With Eric's Yeah, I was kind what of dreading think- that, and now I can just delay it for another however many months. Yeah, because what are they going to do? What like what's going to happen? Is it going to be like a terrifying Thanksgiving clash or something, or what's going to happen? Uh, they're just very different people, and I've never done this before. Okay. And mm. the soon-to-be wife is a nice woman, but she's very loud uh in a way that my parents are not and i just i mean my dad will won't have any trouble hearing her that's that's yes, that's a plus good. that i hadn't thought about till just that's now good. but yeah i don't know it's just one of those like you know like worlds collide kind of things that i would just like who knows what could happen and so i've been kind of dreading it i'm sure it'll be fine when it actually happens yeah yeah my folks have not met my in-laws at all like barely ever seen them on a zoom or anything and it's just for that reason they're so different worlds i don't even think they would recognize that each other was similar age you know what i mean right. it's just yeah. like yeah. better that way it's modern yeah. modern the modern family is no family yeah that's right that's what i'm right. trying to bring into yeah. place we went from actual family to queer family to no family yeah family. in fact vox this year I had this headline that said that Hollywood's hot new trend is parents who say they're sorry. (laughs) Okay. Everything and turning red are part of a burgeoning subgenre, the millennial parental apology fantasy. That almost sounds like advertorial for the whale. Exactly. Which is literally about a father trying desperately to apologize to his daughter before he dies. Yeah. Yeah. It was a Darren Aronofsky native advertising yeah. performance piece. <laughs> he mostly works at a creative services studio in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. He didn't even know it was happening. It was just created yeah. by a weird hub <laughs> in some part of like rural Japan. It was chat GP or whatever that thing is. So we will get to Richard's Oscar winner predictions in a bit. And, and you know what? You haven't released them yet, have you? I mean, they'll come out. This will come out on Monday. So that's the day you're going to release them, right? No, well, I do it. Uh, the predictions I'm going to do, I'm not writing any, but I'll, they'll be on our podcast, Little Gold Men, and that'll be out Thursday, March 9th. So you guys are getting um, the exclusive, as they say, in the journalism business. It's essentially being embargoed until <laughs> right. next Monday. Yeah. Well, let's just dive in. Avatar 2. I only bring this up first because I literally just saw it like five hours ago. And I just was yeah. thinking, Elizabeth, you were like, this is like, major themes it's so obviously it's so obvious that it is Aaron you haven't seen it but I wanted to tell you Sam Worthington's character in it the main character Jake Sully is just Jack Pearson from This Is Us the NBC show that is what he is interesting except he's in the military and also blue and on another planet busy what did you what were your thoughts about this in terms of father themes Well, my first thought was that I seriously need to talk to my psychiatrist because I fucking cried during Avatar 2. Actually, me too. I need to. Totally. I was moved tears by Avatar, a uh, impenetrable ex-military or current military father um, who doesn't, you know, understand his sons and tough love everything and you know, a lot of anger and an ability to <clears throat> be soft with his children. I think there's like literally a like men don't do that or men don't. I can't remember. You he saw says, it. Yeah. Um, his wife says, you're really hard on them. And he goes, I'm a dad. It's my job. Yeah. And I'm like, God, it's so on the nose. But the part where he, t- the part where he says, so he turns to his son who's like disappointed him and he goes, 
I see you. I got so emotional. I did too. Richard, you are you are eerily silent right now. <laughs> no, I mean I I I liked Avatar too. I liked the first one, and I, I I saw it again in theaters when they re-released it last fall, and I was because I hadn't seen it in you know over a decade, and uh, I was yeah. like, oh right, this is kind of amazing to look at. Um, and the father stuff, the man, the manhood stuff, the boys into men stuff of Avatar two was shockingly old school. You know, yeah. in yeah. a way that I have to kind of maybe shamefully admit I liked because it was like, wow, I haven't seen that in a while, you know, and and it wasn't I don't think it was like toxically that if you want right. to use that word. But like it it was just so I don't know, it just felt like a throwback to something in a way that James Cameron was sort of like, oh, I haven't paid attention to discourse in the last 25 yes. years. 100%. And I, I found something oddly refreshing about that, which maybe makes me, I don't know, bad. But like I, I just thought it, I thought it was interestingly done. Um, for something that came out in 2022. Totally. Well, is it a is it a commentary in that? I don't know, but that was something I noticed, Richard. Is that it's not challenged at all. Like that yeah. whole like view of masculinity. It's not. I mean, yes, that there are women warriors in the movie, and the matriarchs are fighters and strong. But like, it's it's otherwise not really questioned or i don't think james cameron is making any sort of comment necessarily okay but next to the the fact that it's such a an, a, an insane like not insane such an incredibly passionate film about conservation like you yeah. kind of think he was cognizant of this stuff like it's mm. sort of crazy Good he's point. such a he's such a lefty in that way and then just doesn't there's a part of me that wonders and i'm probably being something here but if that sort of standard, unnuanced man is head of house, must raise sons. Yeah, and there's a daughter. We care about her, too. But she might be the Messiah. We'll find out in the next movie. Yeah. Um, that is almost deliberately drawn in really rough shapes because it's an international play for box office. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are themes that are translatable, recognizable around the world because they're very old. And I wonder if maybe if he had put any sort of more contemporary gender stuff in there, maybe it wouldn't, they would have gotten scared about the Chinese box office or scared about the whatever Mm -hmm. box office. And I don't know if that's at all the reason for it. Maybe James Cameron just thinks that way. But um, it's not a small part of the movie. It's kind of a huge part of the movie that goes unquestioned, especially when you consider that Jake Sully, head of household, I tell you what to do his wife is left to kind of shriek in the corner for most of the movie, is also an interloper. He's not one of these people. He kind of like invaded it and colonized it. And then and his authority then is kind of should be doubly questioned and yet is not. Mm. But still, I didn't hate the movie. Yeah, it still is pretty spectacular. Like you just do a tiny bit of mushrooms and then you go watch it. And it's great. Did it? Did it make as much money as Top Gun? More, yeah. More. It did. It ended up making the money that James Cameron needed it to make. Right. It certainly did. Yeah. Okay. Because it yeah. cost $250 million to make or something, didn't it? Uh, and I bet that's a low estimate and that does not, does not include marketing. You know, right. I think they needed to make a billion dollars to be profitable um, because usually that's the rubric is you have to make twice the budget. That's twice right. the published budget is how you get to be profitable. Um, and, everyone was so freaked yeah. out about how they spent like $10 million on Waterworld or probably wasn't. It was like $100 million. Like Waterworld was like the most expensive film. Yeah. Yeah. Just because of Jane Triple I guess. And Titanic <laughs> then was, it was, everyone's like, oh, it cost $200 million. 
Which, though, if you adjust for inflation, Titanic was still really fucking expensive. Yeah. Um, but I saw that again. They re-released that in theaters because James Cameron just cannot be satisfied. <laughs> He's the king of the world. And I saw that again in theaters a couple weeks ago. And man, that movie holds up like it is yeah. so good still. Yes. Um, he really he does something that no one else can do. And many have tried and they've mostly failed. And it seems basic, but it's sort of like Sandra Bullock. It's not as simple as it looks. It's so complicated to make these broadly appealing things. Um, okay, well, great. Tar, let's go in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> Nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actress, Kate Blanchett. I mean, so many parts of this are our masculinity and femininity. The line that still sticks out to me, and not just because we do, I do this podcast with you guys, it is like she goes up to the bully at the school and she goes, I'm Petra's father, and then just moves on. It's and it's a- like this way of destabilizing the kid. It's so amazing. I always fantasize about like going and confronting. Like my nephew was had some kid making fun of him at preschool a couple years ago, and I was like, the fantasy of going up to the bully and that scene is incredible. The second best playground bully confrontation scene, though, is um, Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Oh, my God, yes. That's a good one. That's a that's, yeah. that's very a good, one. good one. I loved it. I I loved everything about Tar. I really did. I kept thinking about it after I saw it for days. And my biggest thing that I keep going back to with it is why Todd Field use the audio of the woman from Blair Witch Project screaming as the do you guys know that 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 scene when she's jogging through the park and she hears the woman screaming and she stops yeah that really? that Heather from the Blair Witch Product Project real scream and I did not know that. bottom of this this is not important though for the purposes of this podcast what did you think of it Richard I mean I loved it I it's what was my uh, the number one of my top 10 list this year um yeah. Nice. I, I wrote the little essay in the program at the New York Film Critics Circle where it won a bunch of awards. It won Best Picture. I wrote that essay and just like I've, I've had the opportunity to write about that movie a few times now. And it just I, there's I feel like I'm not writing the same thing four times. Like there's just a lot to say about that movie, which I love. Mm. Um, and I think the scene where, where she says I'm Petra's father is a, a really notable one because, yay, it's it's funny. And like, I think a lot of people are sort of reluctant to admit that the tar is kind of a comedy. I think, you know, it's it's it has heavy things on its mind as well. But like, it's a funny movie. She's very funny in it. The character's funny. Um, So there's that aspect to that scene. But also it's the first scene, if memory serves me, where you really kind of are like, wait a second. Is she like totally normal? Like, is is, is something maybe a little amiss here? Yeah, Uh, because that's not a a terribly, you know, here's a kid that she doesn't see that often. And she's just like, well, how do I assert my parenthood? like in a quick, easy, efficient way on the way of sc- dropping her off to school. And it's that. And I, I think it's a really one part of that movie doing an interesting thing with the audience where it's like you're rooting for her, you're cheering her on. And then at a certain point you realize like, oh, but she's also done these bad things and is maybe going to do them again. And why are we really cheering this person on? It, there's a lot of sort of like the movie demands that you sort of question why you were rooting for her from the get go. And I think that scene in the playground is the first indication that maybe She's not the best hero we could ask for. Because is, is it accurate to say she is a sexual predator? It's heavily implied, I think. Okay. Yeah. 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 And she's she's a sexual predator. She's also a career predator in that, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're closely linked. Yeah. But as we see with the email deletions, like 
if she things go awry with one of her protege slash lovers or whatever, she'll destroy their nascent careers. And that's, you know, um, and if that secret got out, well, which it does, um, it would be her undoing. And then she does have a moment of like self-reflection. It's like, I mean, I think what's interesting about this is the way that it's so emphatically, among other things, the story of a standard entitled sexual predator male in a position of power played by a woman mm-hmm. who has really commanded a sort of she like the way that Kate Blanchard has played with her her like sapphic and alpha femininity and masculinity her whole career has been kind of amazing mm-hmm. it's like Catherine Hepburnish and yeah and with those stories of men Harvey Weinstein etc you don't really ever believe any kind of they have any contrition but I kind of felt like in the end when she sees the women lining sitting there waiting to be chosen and she vomits about yeah. how awful it was I'm like is that like giving her some some kind of relief from the, like something differentiates her from the men who behave exactly the way she does here yeah. I mean, so Blanche had said in an interview that because when the film was pre- premiering at the Venice Film Festival <clears throat> back in early September um people were asking like okay so why is this about a woman like the vast vast majority of the real world powerful men in entertainment and the arts and wherever else who have come to you know light and justice or whatever have been men and so why would you make this movie about a woman um and she said something interesting that i'm gonna butcher but like basically she said that um having it be a woman kind of then strips the movie of expectation because if Mm -hmm. it's a man you know where that movie's going or you at least you think you do you know and with a woman, it kind of creates a different sort of circumstance that's almost like a vacuum, you know, because we haven't had this story before in the real world exactly, at least not on the scale of a, you know, James Levine, who I think the movie is certainly inspired by his story. And and I, I thought that was a really compelling, obviously compelling argument for why they did that. And obviously in the months since people have pushed back on not her statement, but but Todd Field's, you know, uh, whole intention of, of doing that, like. This is kind of a really backwards bad way to talk about Me Too and, and all that, um, which I don't agree with. I think it's a complicated movie that, you know, does risk controversy in a way that very few films do these days, at least, you know, on the scale and kind of um, uh, public uh, visibility of, of Tar. Is it her best work, do you think? I just specifically wanted to call out her other performances, Notes on a Scandal in particular, which was a long, long time ago. But um you know, she basically plays like Courtney Love, who's a teacher who's exposed for sleeping with her student. And so it's playing with that same like power dynamic and and a woman kind of, I don't know, it was like what you were saying, Richard, like we never see the woman as abuser, you know, in film, but pathology will, you know, it's possible, of course, there are female abusers. And when women are allowed power, mm-hmm. you know, they will abuse that power. And so the film is really less about gender than really getting people to look at that. I haven't seen it yet. The distribution for the movie has been weird. Like, it, it hasn't played in my local art house here in well, Ohio. Not to spoil it for you. Um, but I don't think this will necessarily, but one of the things I really loved about the movie is that, yes, a woman behaving badly in all of these ways that we traditionally see men down to, down to violence, but also Erin, she is a 
she's a liar with a capital L. Yeah. And and and, and Todd Field shows it in the most subtle moments and then in these extreme and then it sort of ends in like a really extreme example of it the subtle ways that she manipulates and lies to her wife down to stealing her medication and and lying mm-hmm. about it um was so real and fascinating something okay. i love about the movie is that it's really heady and it's about a lot of things i think it's a movie that addresses the past five years in the most cogent and interesting way that i've seen yet um, yes, but it's also just really right. entertaining. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. a long movie. You have to watch the whole opening credits before things really get started. But you don't yeah. really notice it, or at least I didn't, because right. the movie is just so compelling, and she's so compelling in it. And mm. to your question, Matthew, about whether it's her best work, I think it's a mu- up there. But I think the most important thing about it for me, as a Blanchett fan, mm. is that when she did Streetcar for Sydney Theater Company, and then toured that around the world, and then immediately did Blue Jasmine which she won her second Oscar for, I feel like she had about a decade where she couldn't shake Blanche Dubois. Mm-hmm. And this is okay. the first movie where I think it's totally gone. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting. Yeah, she talked about how tormented she was by that role and her hair was falling out while doing it. She got to this point where she had to, part of the reason she just stopped was her hair just started falling out. And like, on that like moral- 20 years ago, she did like this inside the actor's studio where she revealed that her father was killed when she was very young. And it so traumatized her. It made her split off and realize that she was an actor. And she said she'd never talk about it again. And I don't know if that's true, but um, it's just we should try to get her on you guys because yeah. she has a powerful dad story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you just ever need to talk about your father. Um, Ms. Blanchett, feel free. Richard, have you have you been in the room with Kate Blanchett? I met her at a MoMA event a few years ago, and she was doing a Broadway show, her her only ever Broadway show, I believe, that her husband, Andrew Upton, had directed and I think written. Yeah. Um, and I, at the end of the evening, I like she was kind of like, she wasn't like. She wasn't in mid-conversation that I didn't want to interrupt. So she was kind of like free of people. And I went up to her and said hi and made a comment about having seen the show. And she touched me on the shoulder and talked to me for five minutes about theater. And I still, to this day, have not washed that shoulder. Oh, God, you should have led the show with that. I know. I can't believe you really buried the lead. (laughs) My filthy shoulder. That's so good. (laughs) That's the secret to your use, apart from your serums. What did she say? I mean, what what was that? What was, do you, I mean, what was her, like, what did she have to tell you? I'll reveal my strategy for those moments when I like, because I don't, I don't, I try not to do it often because I find it a little un- unprofessional. Yeah. But like, I basically, you zero in on something, a detail. So I mentioned the costumes because we, the, the event we were at had something to do with costumes at MoMA or something. And so we talked about the costume designer and blah, blah. And, and, and so then that kind of led to her talking about Broadway. And it was just, I don't remember the specifics of the conversation, but I think my hope is that she appreciated that I wasn't just, Hi, I'm such a fan, you know, rattling yeah. off her accomplishments to her. I just wanted to like, I, I, I tried to act as if I was something approaching up here, which of course I'm not, but um, right. I think it worked for yeah. five minutes anyway. But Vanity Fair, two to did, did you demand, you didn't walk up there and go, ladies and gentlemen. Excuse me, I, no. I, I pushed Pedro Almodovar out of the way. And... Um, uh. Listen, no, okay, so... Elvis. I have not yeah. seen this. I tried to watch this and I just couldn't. And I love Austin Butler. I He opened the door for me at a cafe one day on my birthday. And for that three seconds, we were married. But aside <laughs> from that, I just couldn't. I couldn't get through it. And I feel terrible about that. But Same. I, I cannot get 
like more than a half an hour into it. I think yeah. it's the it's Baslerman and the musical choices and the whole thing, the vibe. But to me, Austin doesn't even look anything like Elvis and all the backstory about him, you know, like depriving himself of humanity or any comfort during the making of this film that may have lasted three years and the whole I have the same accent that I yeah. have, you know, that I cultivated. But anyway, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't suspend my disbelief. What about you guys? Yeah, Richard, what's your take on him? He seems, I don't know if he's menacing or just incredible or I don't know. He's a bit like Oprah in like early <laughs> yeah. 2000s in that way. Like he, that's the most mad thing you've ever said. Austin Butler is a lot like Oprah. It's true. Austin Butler also was responsible for making Dr. Oz famous. So that's, that's kind of how, yeah. And she's I don't know. never I mean, apologized. Someone I know was, was in Australia when they were filming that movie and they were on set. Uh, they weren't working on the movie, but they were there. And uh, I texted her and I said, cause I had a crush on Austin Butler from the Carrie Diaries days. Mm -hmm. And, um, I said, oh, what's he like? And she was like, oh, I don't know. I haven't met him. I've met Elvis because apparently he was just in character the whole shoot and mm. clearly has not been able to shake that kind of at this point to an embarrassing degree because he's been like called out on it at this yeah. point. And people are like, here's an audio clip of you talking four years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. you don't sound like that. Do you um, think so he's like Liza Minnelli? Like, she never got just, she could never fully shake off Sally Bowles. Like, do you think that's exactly what's happened to Austin Butler this time? I think the important thing, if anyone takes any conclusions from this episode, Austin yeah. Butler is exactly like Oprah Winfrey and Liza Minnelli. Thank you. I'll <laughs> um, send you a check for that endorsement, Richard. I told you. Like <laughs> My problem with Elvis as a whole was that I think Austin Butler is good in it, but I think he's kind of barely yeah. in it because the movie right. is so busy with Tom Hanks and the swirl of Baz Luhrmann's you know, aesthetic interests. And I, I, and I found that all sort of kind of tiresome. And I also don't really care that much about Elvis to be honest. Um, yeah. But it's certainly a striking performance, you know, and I think, yeah. you know, we'll see what how he, a lot of young actors who have that kind of big breakout don't actually have much of a career post that. Look to Adrian Brody, for example. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, yeah. Adrian Brody has his own other issues, but like, yeah. I don't know, we'll see. I think the worst thing that could happen to Austin is if he wins uh, on the 12th. I think, you know, it's, Elvis's story is a, is a, is a mommy issue story. Um, yeah. His mother had a tremendous effect on him and was an alcoholic and he was always trying to save her. I will say I found the ending, you know, it shows him as fat Elvis in the end and he's mm -hmm. so sweaty and he's so sick. And there is a sad scene where Priscilla like begs him to go to rehab so that he can have more time with his daughter um, and all the more poignant now because of Lisa Marie dying. But um, yeah. otherwise, the movie is a bunch of bullshit. And Tom Hanks, is, his accent is so distracting. Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> it's so yeah. distracting and so weird. I'll just, I was going to tell you a story about, a, about um, chivalry gone wrong. Yeah. Um, so I saw that movie at Cannes and um, I was at, at the end of an aisle or at the end of a row on the aisle, which I nice. love. But in the theater, there are these little fold down chairs that are kind of for like overfill, like jump seats kind of. I've never sat in one. Sometimes people will like arrive late and sit in one next to me. But anyway, this woman arrived and she couldn't find her seat and the ushers weren't helping her. And the movie was starting. The lights were going down. And she had this huge dress on because this was the premiere. 
And I said, oh, you know, if you want, you can sit in my seat. I can just sit in the little jump chair, which I didn't realize is basically a piece of plywood covered by a thin layer of, you know, purple velvet and a red velvet. And so I sat on a piece of wood for three fucking hours watching that movie. And I'm like, would I have liked that more if I was actually in a real chair? (laughs) That is fair. Yeah. Thank you. Well, another long ass movie about a real celebrity superstar is, of course, Blonde about Marilyn Monroe. And I want to say that I really did buy Anna de Armas as as Marilyn much more than I did as Ben Affleck's girlfriend in the movie that was the year to 2020, you know? Um, she, despite the little accent, you know, from Cuba here and there, I thought really embodied, you know, the, the you voice and the look and the, the spirit of Marilyn. It was just such a fucking brutally intense mean-spirited, you know, rapey, daddy issues movie that quite, you know, literally in every scene, there's like a mention of dad, dad, daddy, you know. Richard, your point about this in your review of it was it's unclear whether he was, the director was critiquing the system that killed her by treating her like an object or participating in it, which I think is a totally valid point. And I guess it's both. In a way, I, I think it's both. I mean, I think that when I wrote that, the movie had just premiered. And so I, I I, hadn't read anything about it. I hadn't read any interviews with Andrew Dominic, the director. Since then, I feel like, oh, no, I don't think he was thinking on the, about this on multiple levels. Yeah. Okay. I think okay. he thought he was just making a really empathetic portrait of Marilyn Monroe by going to those extremes. He was therefore being honest about her story, which is kind of crazy thing to say when like, I mean, he realizes that the Joyce Carol Oates book is a novel. It's it's fictionalized. Like it's not supposed to be a direct yeah. biopic, but I think he was trying to capture something. I, I think the interesting thing about that movie is that it kind of feels like Anna de Armas is aimed at different ends than the director is, you know? And like sometimes yeah. they can kind of meet and it works, and then other times it they they go off in their own little directions and and then the movie feels sort of confused and whatnot. But after watching it, I sort of staggered out of the theater and I, and and kind of couldn't like I had to like sit for like an hour and just kind of quietly think about it and you know whatever and i was like well that's the movie being somewhat effective in some way you know it's not a total dud like a lot of biopics are at least it's trying for some kind of feeling and it certainly evokes that at least it did for me in terms of in terms of the actual like father influence here i think it was like a central part of his thesis i don't know if it's is joyce carolites as well but that Really, a driving force was the fact that she had no idea who her father was. So every one of her husbands, she called daddy. It seemed like that was, he was doing this. It was almost reductive in a way. And I, and I kind of thought Marilyn Monroe was actually a, a really intelligent, talented artist. And she, it, I sort of, you get a bit of that when she's going to, you know, she meets Arthur Miller. Yeah. But like, I but was he's like, he's such Isn't... a prick. He's such yeah. a prick. As as portrayed in this movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, she, everybody says that. And of course she was. But the fact that she was treated so horribly by so many men in particular, powerful men, and just the culture at large, you know, we're always having to be reminded, you know, Marilyn Monroe was really smart. 
And by the way, she was a size 14. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, which she wasn't. And also, um, she was really smart, but it's too late to save her. She's dead. Yeah. Like, what are we like? We're like four operas away from really understanding <laughs> Princess Diana and <laughs> really understanding Marilyn Monroe finally and JFK. Just another four operas and then we'll be done. I mean, I shouldn't bite the hand that feeds me in that, like, you know, VF goes in for all that Kennedy nostalgia and Royals mm. nostalgia. So it's it helps keep the lights on over here. But like, it's true. I, I, I do think that like watching a two hour, what is it? Two and a half hours, two hours, 45 movie yeah. where it's just a woman being ground into the fucking dirt. It's like, yeah. why, why, why are we watching? Like what? Like we totally. know what happened. She died. It was horrible. Well, like it was it. sad. She was brilliant. She and, had an abortion. Yeah. You like, know, like, Jesus. I don't know if we need to see her like carrying a tray of drinks out to Arthur Miller's friends and then tripping on the beach. And it was just like, oh God, like every scene was just like yeah. misery. Bloody um, miscarriages. I, yeah. I did. Yeah. I guess I did learn one thing about Marilyn Monroe, which is I previously seen Blonde. I didn't realize that she was Cuban. And I thought that was a, yeah. a you well, know, they finally well, got to the heart of that truth. Yeah. Yeah. The wigs, the wigs were fantastic. And I yeah. never say that. And wigs are the reason I hate so many movies because it Aaron, just takes me out. Wig rage inside. Take, oh my God. Just do it cheap and fake out loud if you're going to try and make it look real. But her Marilyn wigs were on fucking point. Yeah. That's well, good. <laughs> That was an upside. Let's talk about this. Everything, everywhere, all at once. This is how many Academy Award nominations. Michelle Yeoh for Best Actress, supporting uh, for Jamie Lee Curtis, Stephanie Sue, and Kay Hui uh, Kwan. It's Best Picture, Director, Costume, Editing, Original Song, Original Score, and Original Screenplay. And um, it's going to win a bunch of those. Okay. I think. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It struck me as so similar to Rick and Morty. Like on the outset, mm. but busy. What did you think of it? I thought it was great. I mean, I saw it on an airplane, so there was a lot of um, extra. I think I would have been really moved by it regardless, but the airplane effect was certainly there, and I cried through a lot of it. I think that the mother-daughter struggle is very real. A therapist once said to me you know, about this podcast. Yeah, but we don't marry our fathers. We marry our mothers. And um, that might be true. So I liked that this movie explored the tension between mothers and daughters. And I liked that fathers mm -hmm. were, were sort of backdrops. I also liked that they pulled back on making the husband too much of a buffoon. They very much could have. But I, I loved it. I thought it was so moving. I was very like, waiting for my mom's response um, to, you know, watch a movie about mother-daughter tension. And she was like, oh, I fell asleep after 20 minutes. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> like, kinetic and chaotic, you know, that you have to really love Madonna's Ray of Light video. So I could see how, you know, some moms would fall asleep during that. But otherwise, I same same as what everything Dizzy said. Mm -hmm. Like all of the father figures in this are background. Mm -hmm. And like her husband actually looks like a lot younger than her. Mm -hmm. And in a way, like it was sort yeah. of weird. It was infantilizing looks... him. It was sort of strange. Just like the Goonies version of him. Yeah. Really yeah. young. 
And she too is like 60 something, 61 or something. Right. I hope I that's right. We can cut it if it isn't. But what did you think? Tell us everything, Richard. I wasn't on, as high on the movie itself as a lot of people. Um, I like the performances a lot, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that Michelle Yeoh getting that kind of role where she's playing a human being, you know, and not just the the butt kicking, you know, yeah. hero. Uh, I mean, she does a fair bit of that in the movie, obviously. But like, um, I, I think that's that's rare. And hopefully the success of the movie uh, will allow for that to be more the case going forward. You know, and Kiwi Kwan's story is so interesting where, you know, he was a child actor, left acting for, I think, two decades um, and then came back for this and is probably going to win an Oscar for it. Like, that's all exciting. I think my issues with the movie had more to do with the director, directors and the, and the writing. And um, in that I, I didn't really know at the end what it was trying to say about anything. I think it was kind of broadly sentimental in a way that I kind of was confused about. I mean, the mother daughter stuff is clear, obviously, but the broader sort of like existential conclusions like of the movie. people's i think yeah um i also think there's something that bothers me about that movie which is that it's sneakily a superhero movie it's multiverse it's action it's all that stuff it's a big scary villain all that you know and that's okay but i think people worked when a movie came out and it was this kind of underground hit people were talking about it as if like suddenly you know some esoteric little art film made a ton of money and it's like no it's you know it has a lot of the trappings of, of superhero cinema and uh it's just kind of angling it at a different bent but um yeah i don't i don't i didn't dislike it at all i think i just like haven't been able to catch that movie's wavelength for whatever reason i probably owe it a revisit you know i got to agree i i actually was having a hard time figuring out my response and i think i i agree yeah i kind of was like this is broad and at various points i'm like oh you could just do anything in this film just stylistically <laughs> i mean the mother-daughter story was i thought the struggle i thought i got the sense that, that was quite that that was totally separate from this this point that i'm making but it was just like this is becoming insane yeah it's also yeah. incredibly repetitive in places yeah but i yes. still enjoyed it yeah <laughs> yeah but you're right richard it is not like holy mountain crazy it's and it was sort of treated that way it's very traditional and it's plots and kind of superhero-y. Yeah, and I think the way that even the filmmakers, who are not my favorite filmmakers, talked about it was like, do you guys not realize that you kind of like did something that other people have done, but you just put a sort of shiny, you know, quirky A24 packaging on it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's okay if they did that. I don't, I don't resent that. I think I just, I think yeah. maybe my bigger issue with that movie is the discourse around it and not the movie itself, you know? Well, the directors, are they the Daniels? Yeah. Um they they say they admit that it's broad and that they've been surprised by audience reaction um coming up to them feeling very gener you know talking about generational trauma and physics and the laws of nature and all, just all this stuff. And they were like, "Oh wow, that we didn't know. We didn't so they know." They accidentally wrote a portrait of the yeah. the, the, the complex relationship the between a mother and a daughter. That's so <laughs> Know, I don't know. What did they think they were doing? Like they don't care. We didn't think anyone had cared. Cocaine. Oh right. No. Yeah. So okay, let's talk about the whale. Okay. I am going to turn this over to you guys. I actively decided not to watch this because I did not have the emotional fortitude or to deal. With. I just could never find a point where I'm like I can watch this film, like a Lars von Trier film. So I turn it over to you guys. Um, I'll start it off because I want to hear Richard's analysis after Aaron and I speak on this. Yeah. I 
saw it before you did, Aaron. And Aaron yeah. had the best description of it, which is that it's a lifetime art house film. I think that's right on the nose. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very schmaltzy for anyone who hasn't seen it, like in realism. You know, with this guy that's homebound, basically couch bound um, by his severe obesity and health problems. And it, he's in the last week of his life. Mm-hmm. He's a father. And his daughter, played by Sadie Singh, I have to say, in oh. the overacted role of the century, in oh, my opinion, hated it. I hate this movie partly because... Um, not because of any of the performances, except Sadie Sink, the young young person that I'm trashing right now. Just because, the, and I yeah. feel bad about that, but it's, it's just 16-year-old girls are terrible and it's overwrought. But for this character, like she just took it so far. Like her, she, her anger at her dad, I didn't get it. She took it way Busy. too far. I did relate to her anger. My father, in the last few years of his life, was homebound and he was mm-hmm. couchbound, not because of obesity, but because of severe alcoholism. He could not walk in the in the last few years of his life and had to rely on right. a walker. My number one note about a movie that is so home, a person that is so homebound, his apartment was way too clean. There was no. Wow. And there's stuff everywhere. And there's stuff everywhere. But I was like, if this man, I mean, unless he is caretaker, there's a woman in the movie who comes and brings him food and checks on him. Maybe she's She's... cleaning up for him. Um, And my dad did have a host of of people that did the same kind of stuff for him, but um, which he was lucky to have. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Sadie Singh's character is, you called her borderline teen queen just viciously mean but it did it did remind me of being so mad at my dad and so embarrassed by him and and getting into screaming fights with him and him sort of just not knowing I think what to say I got really tired of him and responding to her with you're amazing you're an amazing person after she just completely eviscerates him but I think that there was also something real or familiar for me about someone who had had a difficult, angry teen relationship with her dad, where a lot of it on his part was met with love and shame and mm-hmm. an ability to not see me as a little asshole in that moment and to, I think, mm-hmm. feel for me. But what I want to say is that, and I've shared this with everyone, but I'm like, I've shared this with Matt and Aaron Richard, but I, I had this really strange experience watching it where I did tear up in a couple of scenes legitimately, but you know, I saw it at Nighthawk in a packed theater. My boyfriend and I saw it. And next to my boyfriend was a woman who, when the credits rolled, the ending, I f- couldn't fucking believe how stupid it was. My jaw was open. I was shocked. Um, the this woman the ending, me, yeah. the ending, yeah, starts convulsively, like, full crying, sobbing, sobbing. And her friends thought she was laughing at first or joking, and they were like, you oh. know, like didn't really understand. And she was like, "Oh my dad died." And it was like when you smell puke, so you puke. Like she, oh, I no. heard her 
like gulp out my dad died and then I couldn't stop crying and then (laughs) on my way out another woman was like being held by a man while she sobbed uncontrollably um a lot of men a lot of deer in headlights straight men comforting girlfriends and partners but um I do think my takeaway from that is that there are a lot of people who have homebound fathers Mm-hmm. and parents who have experienced similar things but that's my only takeaway I, nothing <laughs> i hated this movie <laughs> richard yeah. let's tell us how tell much us Reg- i mean i guess you could say that that reaction is the movie doing its job you know yeah. like it, yeah. it, I, I saw it at the premiere and i i walked out of the theater and i ran into a colleague and i was like well that was a piece of shit and he was like holy <laughs> cow that was so bad and like we were like well that's that and we were like sort of done thinking about that movie and then a third colleague came out a, 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 another gay guy was like racking like had he clearly been sobbing and we went to get a drink afterward and oh. we couldn't stop talking about it and i and i felt like such an asshole because i was like uh, like <laughs> i didn't feel anything i i don't get it but um I think that movie it's weird because the playwright Sam Hunter who who wrote the screenplay based on his own play like he has um that was an early play of his and he's done a lot of really great sensitive quiet work uh on the New York stage uh over the years and so to see this melodramatic big thing I mean I think a lot of that is is Darren Aronofsky's fault mm-hmm. the major issue surrounding the movie when it was yep. announced and then subsequently after it came out was like the the visual the, the the representation and like is this fat shaming is it is it is it okay that Brandon Fraser wear, wears this garish prosthetic and all that stuff. Right. And and I think that's certainly an issue worth debating. But for me, the biggest problems with the movie are are technical. The score yeah. is horrible. The performances mm-hmm. are awful. The way it's filmed is bad. Like it just, I, I could not connect to it really on any level except yeah. for Hong Chow giving a quietly dignified performance in a yeah. sea of people shouting motivation at each other. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I then all of this is more let's celebrate Darren Aronofsky, the kingmaker, like not the kingmaker, the comeback director who grabs somebody who's been kind of like in obscurity and then brings them, you know, it's like the big wave of enthusiasm to Brendan Fraser, who I guess, I don't know, it's like, I don't know. His John Travolta. Did he do it with John Travolta? No, no, I just mean Pulp Fiction. Oh yeah, same, like, like, yeah, totally. It's the same kind of thing as as Pulp Fiction. There's some sort of a, I appreciate, you know, also like good for Brendan Fraser, good for Mickey Rourke back in the wrestler days. But like, there's something kind of perverse about the way he approaches that thing. Like Mickey Rourke lost fame for a variety of reasons, but like part of it had to do with what happened to his face. And like, then to do this movie where he's this broken down, about to die wrestler guy, and then to do the same thing with Brendan Fraser, who also, in addition to other problems, lost his looks. I find something leering about it. And these actors are grateful for the opportunity because it makes audiences see them in a light that they hadn't seen them in a long time or ever before, you know, sort of awards worthy, you know, actors. But I don't, I don't detect a ton of empathy there I, I, or genuine compassion there. And um, it's been a little bit right. um, tragic to watch Brendan Fraser do the press tour and the, and the awards campaign for this movie because, you know, it's great. It's good for him. It's great for his career. I mean, I know it means a lot, but like, they're kind of treating him like it's like a whole make-a-wish thing, you know? And like, mm. oh, look, yeah. it's Brendan Fraser. How are you? Are you so amazed to be here? It's like this man has yeah. been a professional actor for 30 years. Like, yeah. he can hand, like, you know, I, I the kid glove approach that that the movie engenders is just very strange to me. And I, I think at root, I don't think that Aronofsky is making these things uh, with the best sort of motivation at, at heart. Well, Darren loves, Darren loves a, a father 
down on a, a down and out father being saved by his daughter. That is the wrestler. But you're so right that there's a, a, a leering. There's absolutely, you know, the Roxanne Gay response to this movie. Just the shocking D. De- I mean, down to the title, obviously, but the dehumanization of fat people and shaming it pulls out all the the stops of how we we misunderstand mm-hmm. obesity and perpetuates mm-hmm. them it, it serves nothing for the movie other than to say you know oh my god look at him eating the pizza um yeah. look at him eating pizza while sinister string music swells you know, like that was like, yeah, how is this empathetic? Like, this is like, to, and the opening shot of him jerking off to the point of having a heart oh, attack oh, to gay porn. Was, it was just like, I, what the fuck is going on? Like this movie is yeah. not compassionate. It's a freak Terrible. show. And but, exactly. You know. Aronofsky was describing this with uh, an experience on the set of The Wrestler with Mickey Rock, where Mickey Rock was having like some issue they were arguing. And he like, Aaron, Darren Aronofsky like proudly recites saying fuck you Mickey you wouldn't be anyone without me you know like it's like they had this this was banter it's healthy and funny the way the two of us get on and it's like give yeah, it there is kind of a a weird exploitation going on there even though I really like a lot of Aronofsky's films like yeah you know, I'm one, like I'm one of the weird there. lone defenders of Noah I like that oh, yeah yeah, yeah it's I don't know why I kind of dig it. Wow. <laughs> you, you don't know why you just defend it in court. No, I, I, I just like up. it. I don't. I can't exactly pinpoint what I like about that movie. I mean, you I, like, I like animals. Yeah, you like I, animals. I do. Sure. I have a deep <laughs> compassion for animals. That's exactly right. But not whales. Can I also just, Richard, just as you were saying that, I want to make a really small part, a point about All Quiet on the Western Front. Ooh. Yes. In terms of a swelling soundtrack. Yes. I will. Can I tell you when I think about this film, there are no women in this film, really. It's not a really a father themed movie. It's spectacular. But I want to say that there is this this soundtrack really stood out to me Mm -hmm. by Volker Bertelman. It is nominated. And the reason it stood out to me is because every time there's a scene with boys or men walking towards war or war is just coming, there's this ominous primal foghorn sound yeah that to me was this the timeless inevitability of war as a part of human nature which is like so patriarchal in so many ways and i'd also just been reading a lot of greek myths so i'm like oh my god it's Ares! it's the trumpet of Ares marching these men off to war like the futility the violence and the horror of it as a kind of inevitability of i guess masculinity or or patriarchy that's a- um that's the obscure abstract point that i wanted to make no about great that about that movie i watched it last night um in preparation of this even though i wasn't sure we were going to talk about it did you see it aaron yes i, um, I saw it yeah they do there is a, a part in it and i can't remember i read this book in high school i can't remember yeah. if this part is in this in the book but one thing that did stick out to me is that one of the the character is named Kat K A T, um, mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, the main character's buddy, um, turns to him at one point and is like, "This will affect everything about how we return to life." Like, it's I can't watch these movies. I can't watch war movies, especially like was it called was it night titled nineteen nineteen? Like that whole which is dedicated to Sam Mendes' father, like. 
you can't watch these movies or I can at least doing the podcast that we do and not think about all of the 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 fury that has been unleashed on families for generations because of what men (laughs) and young men have had to do in war with no resources and then return home and be dads like that's insane and one of the characters does say something like we'll go home but it will always be like we're visitors from another land or something like that and i thought that that was i'm sure it's been in a million other war movies but it stuck out to me as a, a kind of recognition of that absolutely just that ptsd that's like never quelled like I watched this movie with my stepdad who's 85 and has dementia and like many people with dementia you know he's back in the 1940s and he wasn't in war but he was but he's obsessed with it now there's just something about any war movie for you know dads or grandpas growing up where they're just like it's their comfort zone. It's also, Richard, is this the only film that's ever been nominated for Best Foreign Feature and Best Film? No. no. That's okay. happened before. Yeah, it's, okay. it's rare. But um, it's pretty rare that a non-English language film gets nominated for Best Picture. And until mm-hmm. Parasite in 2019, a yeah. foreign language film had ever won Best Picture. So it's a pretty new. So the Academy has added a lot more international members. Um, in recent years as part of their effort to diversify. And um, we're seeing the effects of that more and more. So how did you feel when you came out of it? Of All Quiet? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I avoided that movie for a while because uh, after watching 1917, I was just like, I just don't know what value these war movies have anymore. Yeah. Like, yeah. they look great, but should they look great? You know? Yes. And uh, I mean, like, I think, was it Godard or someone said, like, many, many years ago, there's no way to make an anti-war film because by making the film, you're, you're, you become pro-war. Um, that the existence of the film is pro-war, um, mm. which I think is interesting. Um, and I don't know, I think that All Quiet is obviously an incredible technical achievement. You really feel something profound at the end uh, with that real gut punch of an ending or gut stab of an ending. Um, and, uh, you know, that's all well and good. But I don't know, by the time the tanks were rolling over the kids in the trenches, I was like, this director seems kind of obsessed with this imagery. You know, yeah. it do- it didn't feel right. anti that at all. It felt kind of, again, going back to like leering. That's yeah. what it felt like. But I think that's just a general issue with war films as a whole, um, not with not- All Quiet specifically. They're almost fetish yeah. films in a way. They just yeah. like, yeah. like for, sorry, not to be like reductive or anything, Aaron, but no. Terry, like my uncle is like this too. I've men in my family like just obsessed with the war, like the details of war. It's sort of like the men on yeah. a cruise ship who all, line up to talk to the captain and look at the controls it's like this sort of male technical thing you know totally you know that you know when you're on the cruise ship and you have to get past all the men in line so they actively avoid i want to okay so this is i want to wrap this up with with two films that i want to tie together and i am interested to know richard your opinion of one of the well both everybody's opinion of these i'm talking about banshees of insurin And Close. I thought these two films, Close is nominated for Best International Feature, and uh, Banshees is Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actor again, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Score, Best Screenplay, Best Editing. I mean, it's like, you know. Both of these films are portraits of masculine, of male friendship, and the severing of male friendship in some way. They are about male intimacy. 
And it really was strange. I'm not, I, I was so, I was kind of like, oh my God, they're so similar in a way. Like the, the weirdness of male intimacy, how it plays out, the awkwardness of it. Close, if you don't know, is a Belgian film uh, by, um, directed by Lucas Daunt. It is about two um, pre-adolescent best friends who have a very, very close loving friendship that could or couldn't, might not be queer. Um, they go to high school and then the world kind of, the, the, the world of high school kind of impacts them and they start to drift apart. One of them moves apart from the other one more so than the other and um, to, to kind of quite tragic, really heart-wrenching um, effect. And it's, it's a tragedy. It's like devastating, beautifully acted. I was deeply moved. I actually watched the film. I was, I was dissociating during it. Like I was so amazed by the performances of these two actors, these two young actors. And at the same time, my brain was like, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. And because I'm like, oh, I've totally been both of these two kids. Anyway, similar to like Banshees, although Banshees, I think, is kind of a lot funnier and darker. I mean, it is funnier. Um, where, you know, Colin Farrell's character and Brendan Gleeson just like, they were friends. And then Brendan Gleeson's character just doesn't want to be friends anymore. And what happens? And it's a portrait of that as like it's sort of like insight into like with war in the background like this is how war starts these two men just fighting insanely and they won't give up and they won't give up and they won't give up and this is kind of war um richard you did not like close no no and i, I loved the first 20 or so minutes Right, that's right. Sorry, I think that I stuff thinking. is so delicately done. It's so specific to the friendship shared by these two specific characters. It is it is set in rural Belgium. One of the kids' parents run a tulip farm or at least work on a tulip farm. It's very visually specific, location-specific, character-specific, and that's all great. Then there's mm -hmm. a turn, and it becomes, to borrow a phrase about the whale, a lifetime movie about the most generic tragedy mm -hmm in the most yeah. generic way possible. And I think that's really manipulative and is kind of a hallmark of this young filmmaker's films based on his last one girl. And it really bothered me. I was very much in the minority about that when it premiered at Cannes. I got yelled at by a colleague, literally yelled at at a party for wow. saying I didn't like it. Uh, um, that It was Matthew. Matthew Matthew yelled at me. Um, I, yeah, you said you were going to say anything yeah. about that. And then I acquiesced and I said, you're right, the movie is like Oprah. Um, <laughs> um, Thank you, finally. But I think that the first 20 or so minutes have such potential that I will definitely go see what he makes next. Um, my suspicion <laughs> is it'll be an English language film. But you just, I really felt myself mourning those early stretches as the movie went on because they are, the, I mean, I switched schools when I was in fifth grade. I, I went from a, a kind of touchy-feely private school to a not touchy-feely at all Catholic school. And the okay. first day of recess, my, at my old school, the boys and girls would play together. It was just kind of loose. You'd play kick whatever like random little lawn games it wasn't like structured and i went out to recess and all the girls went into one corner just started talking and all the boys just without speaking organized a touchful football game and i was uh. like what do i do and that was the first time anyone had ever said i was gay or like whatever right so that portion of the film is so painfully relatable that um i just felt down let down by what happens after that yeah i mean valid valid i i just i think i was so 
swept up in it and just also just like watching these boys like what they were capable of like as actors that one young um, actor is extraordinary i mean yeah. i hope that people i hope he has good people around him because yeah um that's a talent that if he wants to pursue it um should be fostered and you know all that because um yeah it's a really insightful performance from a kid who can't have been more than 12 when he made the film oh totally yeah yeah um and then you guys saw Banshees, right? Mm-hmm. Busy, you I saw didn't, it. But you didn't did. see it, Aaron? I, mean, I think, well, talking about like Richard talking about like elementary school and whatever, that feeling like there for me, I was sort of immediately drawn in by the premise of one friend deciding we're not friends anymore and sort of like that the bad dream feeling of it. And it did ev- evoke, you know, childhood of, of, girls being like I don't like you anymore or like I'm not your friend anymore or I mean girls and boys do it um and that terror of like what did I do um is very real and I felt like Colin Farrell did a good job with that um otherwise I didn't really I found myself you did it I loved Jenny I loved the, the, the fingers but there it all there was something missing for me in the end and I don't know what it was. I will say though, and he has the actor has been getting a lot of attention, but it, and I, of course I don't remember his name, but Barry Q, yeah. Plays the, the the son of the abuser policeman father was so moving and so good. Unbelievable. The scene where he confesses his love to the sister was unbelievably good in my opinion. I really loved all of that. It was very well acted and poignant. And that actor Barry Keegan has a you know really difficult backstory and his mother struggled with addiction for years. He was in foster care for many years. I think he lived with I think it was like seven different families in his childhood into adolescence and you know I, I'm sure there's part of that that he related to in that film and I yeah I think it's yeah. a it's a really beautiful performance as is Colin Farrell's as is Carrie Condon's as is Jenny's as, as is that fucking as island. I mean like Oh totally. I I I I interviewed Carrie Condon a couple weeks ago for our podcast and I was like, I hope this doesn't sound like crass or whatever, but like that little pub by the ocean with the little outdoor seating, I was like, I would go on vacation there. And she was careful to remind me it was nice, but it was very cold. So there was that. But yeah, I think I I, I like that movie. I've seen it a couple of times. And uh, McDonough is someone who I kind of wrestle with. I think he really should never work in America again. Like his American movies and plays are not good, I don't think. Um, but, um, But being returning to Ireland really works for him with this. And I like it as a human study, character study kind of thing. I don't like it as a, a war allegory in the way that it occasionally seems to be trying to be, because I think that aspect of it is a little heavy handed. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of ripped in a little bit. Yeah. But just the way that they stood on the beach at the end and they're just like staring there going, I'm never giving this up. I'm never. And it's yeah. just like, yeah. that's men. There yeah. you go. That's that bitter sort of yeah. bittersweet emphasis on the bitter that he kind of traffics in in his best work. Okay. A question. Oh, please. Be- before we go to predictions, were there any surprises for you, like uh, w- the Woman King and Viola Davis, uh, or the movie Till? Yeah. You know, not being acknowledged. I wish that I could be surprised that the Academy ignored people of color, but yeah. like that's what they do, even though they've made efforts to be better. I think in the case of Woman King, I I think that movie would have been better off if it hadn't pitched itself as an awards movie. It's a big, robust sword and sandal drama that does that well you know Mm -hmm. i don't think it needed to be an oscar contender to be have been a worthy film you know 
Um, I think in the case of Till, which certainly does better fit the bill of an awards movie from an interesting director who made a movie called Clemency with Alfred Woodard, who was overlooked for nomination a couple years ago, grievously overlooked, I think. Till, my suspicion about that movie, and I understand based on the subject matter, a lot of um, Black people had expressed to me when the movie was announced that they would never see it because they were mm-hmm. they feared it would be exploitative and whatnot, kind of tragedy porn. It's not that, the movie itself. But I think my hunch is a lot of Academy members just didn't watch it because they either didn't care, which would be really bad, or they were sort of scared off by what it was about, which is more understandable. Is it Angela Bassett's year? Well, it was looking like that until the SAG Awards when um, Jamie Lee Curtis won. And now I have no idea. <laughs> I mean... Well, okay. So yeah. then why don't we go yeah. through them? So, okay. Best film. Who do you think? Uh, I, that's Everything Everywhere. I think Everything Everywhere won the SAG Ensemble Award. It won the Producers Guild Award. And it won the DGA, the Directors Guild. So I think those three combined, I, I don't I don't think there's any indication that it will lose to any, any other film. Okay. Yeah. Best Director? Oh, that's a tricky one because for a while it looked like Spielberg was finally going to get his first win in 25 years, um, 24 years. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen now because the Fablemans has sort of fallen by the wayside for whatever reason. Um, the Daniels did win at the Directors Guild, so that would indicate that they have a strong chance. It's not that often these days that picture and director go to the same film. It did for Nomadland, but that was a weird year. So if anyone were to win instead of the Daniels, who I think are still the front runners, I genuinely don't know. Because I think if if Berger, Edward Berger, who directed All Quiet, had been nominated, which he weirdly wasn't, I think he would win. But now that he's out of the running, I don't think it'll be Ruben Oslin for Triangle of Sadness. I, I Spielberg, maybe. I, I, I don't know. It's a tricky one to predict. But right now I'm saying the Daniels. Triangle of Sadness was a fucking masterpiece. His stuff is amazing. I yeah, I, I mean, I didn't. I thought it was sort of. We had limited time. It wasn't particularly father centric, but what a what a masterpiece! It's about the father of us all, you know, capitalism. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, sure. Best actor. Well, again, SAGs changed that up because Fraser won. My hunch, and I said this on our podcast this week, is that the SAG, the, the Screen Actors Guild, um, which is you know partnered now with AFTRA, which is more kind of television, uh, radio, internet personality kind of people, commercial people, um, they have a sentimental streak. You know, and I think that that might not be reflected by the Academy. I still think because of the Academy's international makeup, the fact that Austin Butler won the BAFTA, I still think that he is the front runner um, because there's precedent with Rami Malek. Usually young actors who kind of come out of nowhere don't win Best Actor. That's more for young actresses. But I think in this case, it could happen because Elvis was a big commercial hit. It got tons of nominations. But if he doesn't win, I think I think Fraser will get in there. Yeah. Unfortunately, okay. Colin Farrell has, I think, fallen to a distant third because he's not doing a big transformation. He didn't change his voice. He didn't put on prosthetics. And these days, sometimes that's what it takes to win. Yeah, the nose, the old, the famous latex nose. Um, actress. Again, Michelle Yeoh winning at SAG to change the narrative that Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett has basically won everything she could have until the SAG Awards. Everything she was nominated for, I think, with maybe a few minor exceptions, uh, she has won. So I still think she's a front runner because everything everywhere is likely to win in other categories. So maybe people will say, oh, we'll give it picture director. We'll give Kiwi Kwan his award. Maybe Jamie Lee Curtis. So I'm going to vote for Kate Blanchett as the ambassador for a film tar that they seem to like more than I thought they would. I mean, it got nominations in editing and cinematography sort of yeah. below the line stuff that I didn't think it would get. So I still think Blanchett, but. I think Tar, I, I know that there are some big heavy hitter celebrities um, who I'll tell you off mic 
did not like it because I think some people in the industry feel a, a bit indicted by it. Um, oh. And I think maybe people are a little bit like sick of the Blanchett show um, in Ooh. some ways, but I think that might just be a little, the little green monster. That's right. hot. That's a hot um, who do you, Who's for supporting actress? It had been looking like Bassett based on not a ton. I don't, I guess the Golden Globe, but that shouldn't really be a predicting model at all because the, that's just 80 freaks. <laughs> doing what they want to do Um, uh, no respect for the that academy Bassett would win a career award you know it would be for her performance in Black Panther or Wakanda Forever which is good and you know big strong kind of Shakespearean monologuing but it would really be like hey sorry about what's what's love got to do with it all those years ago and sorry that we basically gave you shit roles for you know, 30 years after 30 that. 30 years, that's um, right. Yeah. Until Ryan Murphy put you on TV. So I thought that's kind of how it was going to go. It would be also a way to avoid the Oscar so white controversies of old, uh, in, at least in some small part. But I don't know. That audience at the SAGs loved J- Jamie Lee Curtis. Even before she won, they loved her speech. Yeah. They loved that movie. Jamie Lee Curtis is arguably also in a similar career position as Angela Bassett is like, never won one of these big awards they have very different narratives obviously unless angela bassett has movie star parents i don't know about um but uh yeah i'm still tentatively saying bassett but like that prospect seems to be dimming by the day and then best supporting act that's kiwi kwan absolutely without a doubt in my mind okay he's one again other than um there was he didn't win the bafta that went to both supporting actors categories went to banshee's been or sharon at the baftas but that's you know kind of more homegrown. So I, I think Kiwi Kwan for not only the performance, but also that incredible narrative where he's been welcomed yeah. back into the industry. And then we'll probably not get great work going forward, sadly. Right. Well, that's it. Yeah. All the predictions, the films that we're going to talk about, the father themes all the way through. Richard, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you for having me. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.